0: This talk is is much, 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 much more indirectly a philosophy of nature talk and more trying to um, step back and take a bit more uh, thousand foot view or, or um, it's like 56 billion light year view uh, of, of the universe and say, okay, how do we try to, what are the first steps we might make and looking at contemporary questions coming from modern science and seeming contradictions with questions of the faith. And the focus is going to be, in a certain sense, what we what St. Thomas you know, prays about in the the uh, uh his prayer of Odephil Creator, about God who is the wise order of all things. Can we make sense of God as the wise order of all things in the context of how uh in, in the context of modern science? Um and specifically in the context of the Big Bang. All right, let me make sure I'm organized. I'm trying to work with two computers here, so I'm probably gonna mess it up. There we go. Okay. So um I don't know about you but when I th- when I think about creation uh you know as as a as a as a catholic who's kind of interested in science there's this weird amalgam of images that pop into my mind um in some ways it's sort of like some combination of a discovery channel or nova or you know some popular science youtube channel video of a massive explosion and then i like to think there's this, like there's this really deep voice I think like James Earl Jones or, or Morgan Freeman in the beginning. Um, this this weird mix of sort of scientific and and religious imagery. Um, and in one sense, that's not a bad place to start, but it, it puts us into a sense of seemingly, at least for some, unbearable tension. Because if you read past in the beginning, um, what we find is uh, the seven days of creation. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, The earth was without form and shape. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good and separated the light from the darkness. And we continue on with the seven days of creation, separation of dark from light, uh, of earth from waters, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a way in which when we read that religious imagery, right, there is uh, a concreteness to it. There are specific, There is God's activity is obvious. God did this, then he did that. Saw it was good. The next day he did this other thing. He saw that was good. Later on, Adam and Eve show up, uh, and God's talking to Adam and Eve. There's this direct activity of God in the uh, in, in an obvious role of God in this religious picture of nature, and it seems nice and neat and, and beautiful, and it is. But when we look to the the scientific picture of, of, of the beginning, right? We get a picture of the Big Bang. And what is that picture? Well, this is a kind of, you know, schematic drawing that NASA gave to try to express some aspect of what's going on in the Big Bang. And the first thing we notice is that there's 13.7 billion years. So there's a very, very, very long time from the Big Bang to where we are. And what is the Big Bang? Well, this Big Bang is, you know, this rapid expansion. So, I mean, rapid is like, it's the most. It's, 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 it's so inadequate to what's actually going on. So, um, space, so so matter in space expands 10 to the 26 times, right? So the density it was, it, it started, think 10 to the 26. So that's a one with 26 zeros after. That's an inconceivably large number. And it does that in the space of uh, 10 to the negative 36 seconds. So that's, that's think, okay, 10 with 36 zeros on under after that, one divided by that. So like another inconceivable number. So you're taking an inconceivably large number, dividing it by, uh, uh, uh times one over this inconceivable. It's the, the rate of this expansion is, is literally unimaginable. Um, uh, it's so far outside of anything we could ever get our head around experience. And it's the very definition of violent and chaotic explosion. Okay, so that's very different from this seemingly careful ordering of things by God. But it gets, in some ways, it it gets worse. More explosions, more chaos. Um, So the initial Big Bang um, things sort of, uh, the the matter is spread out over the course of billions of years. It slowly recollects into what uh, the proto galaxies and proto stars. those things ignite, become nuclear furnaces that then are uh, that are the uh, the, the initial uh, uh, generation of stars in a relatively quick couple billion years. Those then explode uh, and spray matter all over the place, and then continue to recollect to make more stars and explode again. Uh, and eventually, there's complicated enough stuff. Roughly about four and a half billion years ago, one of those uh, in one of those galaxies uh, uh, in one of those collections. Um, On the periphery of this nuclear furnace that became our sun, some of that matter collected into what is now the Earth. Um, For About 4.5 billion years ago, there is the development of life about 4 billion years ago, um, uh, the the rise and fall of species after species, uh, uh, roughly 100,000 years ago, the uh, the beginning of uh, uh, the the, the presence of Homo sapiens, uh, a lot of... But there's just this whole story puts... So much distance between us and creation, between human persons and creation. There's roughly 13.7 billion years between us and the beginning. And so how is it that we can try to reconcile this seemingly personal and and direct activity of God that seems to come out of Genesis chapter one and chapter two with this seemingly distant, chaotic, uh, expansive picture that comes from modern science? Um, on the surface of it, uh, there's these seem to be irreconcilable. Um, uh, now, again, this is just a part of the picture. I mean, in theory, there uh, there are there are theories that there might have something been something before the Big Bang. That this might just be a fraction of what's going on in all of reality. That we're just some small branch in a larger structure of the universe. Uh, I'm going to avoid. Get, uh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll mention that again briefly later. But for now, I want to turn. Uh, and and uh, in, in sort of embracing that tension, I want to look more closely at the scriptures and try to get our head around what exactly, how exactly we should try to read uh, and understand Genesis chapter one in particular. Um, again, oops, let's see. so when we, think, when we think about creation in the scriptures, right, um, our default, most people's default is to think about Genesis chapter one. In fact, actually, I think most people probably default to some weird amalgam of Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, because already right away, there are two accounts of creation. They are, you know, related to one another in some sense, but you have the entire creation up through uh, uh, human persons uh, and it was very good. And then it's, oh, wait, we're we're, we're creating human persons again. Okay, this is interesting. Um, So already just there, there's a tension. But if we actually think about creation in the scriptures as a whole, there's a whole lot of other creation narratives or discussions of creation that go beyond, uh, and uh, may, they may not be as as detailed in particular as Genesis chapter one and two, but they parallel them in various ways. So for instance, um yeah, so we have you know, Genesis chapter one, um, uh, I'm sorry, Yeah, again, the beginning of Genesis chapter two, right? We've just finished the all of creation and it says, Now, this is the story of the heavens and the earth at their creation. There's already this initial tension, even intentionally put there by the authors of Genesis. I mean, if they wanted to, they could have just erased that line, perhaps, and said, "Okay, let's just try to see if we can, can force these to be one story. No, they just decided to put these two stories right next to each other. But we can go into things like Proverbs. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight rejoicing before him always. Again, this is neither Genesis chapter one nor Genesis chapter two. There are echoes that you could see in one or the other or both of them. And yet there is, uh, there is a, a, a density to the conversation about creation in the scriptures that goes beyond simply just the text of Genesis chapter one or the text of Genesis chapter two. So that's just a first thing to remember and, and not lose sight of. Um, uh, um, this, so, but even if we did try to focus on just Genesis chapter one, which I'm going to do for the rest of the talk, even there, there's this impression that we might have Particularly from today's day and age, that uh, our reading of Genesis chapter one was honestly just really easy up until roughly 150 years ago, where it was just pretty obvious what Genesis chapter one was trying to say. And then modern science comes along, evolution and the Big Bang, and now we got to start getting creative. Now we have to start thinking like, okay, well, let's let's see how much we can tweak this and play with this. And this is this is some weird modern invention of modern scripture scholarship: the idea of trying to think allegorically about what's going on in Genesis chapter one. And there's, I think, a common understanding that, 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 that filters in among many Christians that the, the conversation about Genesis chapter one only really got complicated relatively recently. And that's simply false. That's just not true. Um, if you look at the church fathers talking about Genesis chapter one, there is a huge range of opinions about how they read Genesis chapter one. Some of them do read it as a very simplistic seven 24-hour days. A day is a day. I know what a day is. A day is 24-hour period. Others sort of expand on that. For God, a day is like a thousand years. So it's seven eras, maybe of explicitly a thousand years or maybe of an indeterminable length that there is, uh, that this is talking about the order in which things happen. But day is a metaphorical uh, kind of conversation. Some think of it not even as days. These aren't really meant to be intent. These aren't intended by the very authors of scripture to express 24 hour periods, but to express a certain ordering and priority. Um, So uh, a particular note, just for the sake of time, I'm gonna jump to Augustine, who is already in some ways reacting against uh, uh, previous church fathers. But uh, Augustine wrote on Genesis a lot. Uh, He's very concerned about Genesis. And root in part because of um, uh, what was preached about, ba- uh, uh, or, or, or came up in, in the, uh, the the tour yesterday, um, that he was a Manichaean. Um, um, uh, so he believed the, the writings of Manichae and, and um, yeah, forgetting the name, um, which is a certain like ancient precursor to the Albigensian heresy that Dominic was, uh, that St. Dominic was preaching against. And he believed in this idea that there was a good God and an evil God. And the evil God created material stuff. The good God created spiritual stuff. And so we had to fight off the material stuff and get to the, get the, and fight off our material nature uh, to get to the, uh, the, the evil material nature and get to the good uh, uh, spiritual nature. So when he converted to Catholicism, it was very important for him to understand how exactly it is that God created, the one God created, and what he created was good. So he, at various points, uh, 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 he has various commentaries uh, on on Genesis. It comes up in the it comes up in the Confessions. It comes up all over the place. Some of them are unfinished, but there's one interesting one where he has his. It's literally it's it's Genesis ad literum, his literal commentary on Genesis. And so I was like, oh, okay, so this is going to be his basic, simple, straightforward reading. Uh, so it should be pretty obvious what he's going to say. Light is light. Day is day. So let's look at Genesis. How does, how does, in you know, book one, chapter nine of uh, uh, Genesis Ad on what does Augustine say about let there be light? But if the light, spoken of all in words, let there be light and light was made, must be supposed to have a primacy in creation, it is nothing other than intellectual life. Now, there's this, this reflection he has on, on Genesis, the, uh, the literal interpretation of Genesis, it is beautiful and interesting and in his own right. In certain ways, he kind of steps away from it later in his career. But what he's trying to emphasize here is he wants to say that the, he has this, this intuition that, uh, that creation could not have happened over time. It had to have happened instantaneously. And where is he getting that from? He's getting that from philosophical reflection on nature. That in a certain sense, like the best science of his day, as he understood it, the very idea that there would be stages in creation didn't make sense to him. And so he thought that that was a flawed way of understanding reality. So that couldn't be what the scriptures were really literally trying to say. That couldn't be what the authors of scripture were trying to say. So he was trying to uh, uh, express a reading of Genesis that was literal. That was what the, the person who wrote this had in their mind when they were expressing this. And he incorporated into that his best understanding of the philosophical and theological truths about creation that he had. So for him, this conversation about uh, Genesis chapter one is actually, in a certain sense, God revealing to the angels the ordering of the physical order. Uh, and so let there be light is the first sort of um, uh, um, the intellectual life uh, of the angels that is, that, is, that is expressed to them. Then there's sort of particular meanings to morning and evening, particular e- meanings to these various other aspects. The point I want to get across here is simply that, in the Christian tradition, literal reading of scripture did not mean, okay, day. Let me go look up the dictionary. What does day mean? Okay, that's, the, that's what this means. What is, what is light? Let me go look up the dictionary, what, what light is. That's what light means. Literal was, what was the intention of the author? We, as human persons, know that we can write in metaphor and poetry. Uh, I, I, can, I can exaggerate at times. I can, uh, uh, and yet, I can be telling truths in the midst of that exaggeration. I can be telling truths in the midst of that metaphor. So the idea that there was a literal reading of scripture that was not uh, literalistic, that was not um, the simplest reading, the first reading that came to mind, was already present in the church followers. Not all the church followers agreed with them. Some of them read it, again, more explicitly literal, more, you know, 724 hour periods. But there was a range of opinions here. But but importantly, uh, Augustine, in in another work uh, on Genesis, just titled On Genesis, also lays out, as a later work lays out important principles for how to think about and talk about Genesis. And they're really important principles for how to think about and talk about scripture as a whole. Uh, so keep uh, um, mouse, there we go. Um, so I'm going to look at three passages from three chapters in this work on Genesis that Augustine is laying out important principles of how to think about, particularly, uh, times when the, the scriptures are talking about Um, natural uh, the physical world and natural reality things that we can come to understand by natural means so he says in matters that are obscure and far beyond our vision and like the very beginning of the universe is probably about as obscure and far beyond our vision on a natural level as we can get even if uh, even in such as we may find treated in holy scriptures different interpretations are sometimes possible without prejudice to the faith that we have received In such a case, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search of truth justly undermines this position, we too fall with it. That would be to battle not for the teaching of holy scriptures, but for our own, wishing its teaching to conform to ours, whereas we ought to wish ours to conform to that of sacred scripture. So even though he is, for instance, presenting this particular reading of of the literal reading of scriptures... He is careful to say this is not the only possible way to read this. He respects the other church fathers enough to say that there is, there is a range of opinion here. Um, and there is, it's possible to sort of see this slightly differently without giving up what is core to the faith. But he goes on in the next chapter to say, It is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel, apologies for the slightly archaic way of talking about those, the, the non-believers, to hear a Christian, presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on these topics, topics related to the earth, heavens, stars, plants, animals. If they find a Christian mistaken in a field which they, the non-believer, themselves know very well, and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions about our books, about the scriptures, how are they, this non-Christian, going to believe those books in matters concerning the resurrection of dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven? If we so insist on our particular interpretation of the, the you know, aspects related to how the heavens work coming out of the scriptures, um, that we so insist upon this when someone who has actually studied the heavens, studied astronomy, says that's just false and knowably false, then we are actually providing a barrier to them understanding what is actually important. In a certain sense, yes, it's interesting what, prescri- what the, the, the scriptures might say about the heavens, but that's not, that's not the source of our salvation. The source of our salvation is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so if we put up barriers to people receiving the core aspect of our salvation, we're doing it wrong. Now, similarly, he goes in the other direction. More dangerous is the error of certain weak brethren, so Christians, who faint away. When you, they hear there's these irreligious critics or the non-believers who are disparaging the scriptures as unlearned. So they're, they're you know, so, so a, non-script, a, a, a non-Christian uh, talking about the scriptures and saying it's silly and doesn't make any sense. And, the, and, and yet they are learnedly, these, these non-Christians, learnedly and eloquently discoursing on theories of astronomy. Uh, with a sign that they esteem these teachers as superior to themselves. And they return to disdain to the books which were written for the good of their souls. So there's a way in which bad interpretations of scriptures are an impediment to non-believers coming to understand the core truths of the faith. And they're also a danger to believers that if we so, if, if, if we misunderstand how to read the scriptures and become so fascinated with the amazing truths that come from, come from outside the scriptures that we, that we disparage the scriptures themselves and find them unhelpful, then we are a danger to our own salvation as well. So it's important to have that right balance. Between uh, what the scriptures are able to convey, uh, what the scriptures are trying to convey, and how they interact and can interact well with our best understanding of the natural world. I want to just take a moment then, and just very, very briefly, so we're going to, uh, in, in line with that sort of tension that between that sort of trying to hold together the scientific and the religious, I'm going to shift very quickly from the religious back to the scientific. Say, okay, okay. So where exactly does this notion of 13.8 billion years come from? Um, and I'm going to do it in a very sketchy way, but just to motivate this for people who haven't actually kind of delved into this themselves, just with a couple of examples. Um, there are various ways in which you can figure out how old stuff is. Um, one, of the most, uh, one, of the, one of the most powerful in terms of stuff we can get our hand on is called radio, radiometric, radiometric dating. <laughs> Roughly speaking, stuff that is radioactive decays at a, at a certain rate. We don't know exactly when any particular radioactive atom is going to decay, but on average, they decay at a certain rate. And so if we have a certain sense of how much radioactive stuff should have been present at the, when, when something was first formed, in, you know maybe in, you know, usually in the center of some star, um, then we can get a general sense of how old it is by how much the radioactive stuff has decayed. So this is a picture of the Kenyan Diablo meteorite. So this is just a hunk of rock that fell out of the sky uh, and we found in in Kenyan Diablo. And just a basic lead-lead dating. So this is a certain kind of uh, radioactive lead isotope decaying into non-radioactive lead. By using that dating, we can date this to roughly 4.5 billion years. So we're already on the scale of billions, right? We throw that word around a lot. Um, I think the closest, like, so ancient cultures. There were certain. There are certain ancient thinkers that thought the universe always existed and was infinite. There are certain uh, ancient cultures that thought the universe wasn't infinite; it was finite. The numbers you hear for how old the universe is maybe get up to like the millions range, like thousands upon thousands. The idea of billions is like beyond the scope of most ancient cultures. Just no one even conceived of the fact that the universe would be that old. Um, uh, There are arguments that maybe the Mayans did. If you multiply together all their calendars, it gets to like roughly uh, a billion or so. But just on human scales, billion is huge. So just want I just want to like emphasize that. So there's we have stuff that we can touch and and mess with that we have very, very strong reasons to think is billions of years old. Um, We can do similar kinds of radiometric dating with stars, um, by, by um, looking at, uh, uh, we can figure out the elements present in stars uh, based off of the spectrum, like related to what I was saying about how um, different uh, elements tend to interact with particular wavelengths of light. That gives us insight into what elements might be in the stars. We can do similar kind of dating on stars, radiometric dating, um, which puts the age of those stars in the range of tens of billions. So there's big error bars on it, but it's like, you know, 15 plus or minus 4 billion years. So, but we're now we're into like the 10 to 15 billion years. Um, We can also lean on the fact that we have a really good understanding of how stars age. Um, that when, uh, that stars, when they're created, depending on uh, the particular um, uh, uh, material constitution of those stars, and here, I'm just going to have to like apologize to Juliana sitting over here, who's an actual astrophysicist. And I'm just going to butcher this horribly, very quickly. Um, that broadly speaking, right, when a galaxy is formed, and you get tons and tons of stars that, that, that are born, they roughly fall along this diagonal line. Right. That initially, when stars are born, they fall somewhere along with this line, which is the main sequence. And the stars up on the top left, which are blue, are the hottest stars and burning the brightest and tend to burn out quickest. Whereas the stars down at the bottom are more red light or less hot and they just tend to last longer. And so we can actually look at a galaxy and say, okay, a brand new galaxy should have stars along this entire line. And as the stars age, slowly these stars from the top left are going to start drifting over into the supergiant region. And so, by based off of how you know, the distribution of stars we can see, and we can get a sense of this from the the light coming from the stars and other ways of measuring uh, exactly where they fall on this plot. Um, the sort of uh, the older a galaxy is, the let's see, oh, uh, the older a galaxy is, sort of the further uh, further you know, the the, the more of the the top left that is going to get curved over into the top right. So uh, if we look at two examples of this, right, on the left here is a galaxy M67. And so as you can see here, there's this like really strong, dense line that follows roughly that main sequence. Um, But it doesn't, you know, at some point, the stuff in the very, very top left has aged out and started to drift over to the right. So this galaxy, based off our understanding of how, you know, by lots and lots of galaxies, how they age, uh, we can say that um, this galaxy is roughly three to five billion years old. Whereas here we have M4, which what I understand is uh, one of, if not the oldest galaxy we've come come across. And here it's a bit of a mess, right? Like you've got a little bit of the main sequence down here in the bottom right, but most of the galaxies have drifted off to the right. And so we can get a sense that this must be a much, much older galaxy. uh, And we can age this one to roughly 12 to 13 billion years. So now we have Physical radioactive dating that's giving us ranges of you know tens of billions of years. We have this the, the development of stars, which is giving us ranges of ten to uh, ten to twelve billion years. We can also make uh, uh, predictions for the age of the universe based off of the overall expansion of the universe. Right. So what do I mean by that? Um, so if so, in the center of this plot, zero years is today, and we can look out. And we can see that uh, most of the universe is is moving away from us. There's an expansion of the universe, right? And so if we just run that tape backwards, that means the universe is gonna get smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually that gets us back to the Big Bang, which we presume to be sort of, you know, the beginning of the universe, that age that we're looking for. Now, depending on the particular properties of the the universe, the the way in which it, it, uh, you know, the way in which you need to run that backwards is going to change um you know, so these are just different different sort of types of universes, basically different distributions of types of matter in the universe um and depending on which particular uh uh, uh value of these constants you get, it might be that for, you know from where we are today it uh, it's a, it, uh, it gets back to the big Bang quicker, so more like five billion years ten billion years fifteen billion years so If we understand this, these overall properties of the universe, we can trace back to exactly when the universe is. Now, it's there's like the data we've been able to collect makes it much more simple than just this nice little uh, uh, two dimensional plot. But um, with some of the most sensitive detection we've been able to do of what is called the, the cosmic microwave background, this is sort of the first light that we can see that has escaped the early universe. Um, uh, And I'm not going to go into the details of this, but this is in a certain sense, a picture not of the Big Bang per se, but not that that long after the Big Bang. Um, And it's the light that's coming from us. And the variation in color here is um, uh, very, very sensitive. Um, And by by figuring out the, the distribution of that variation, it helps us to understand the the overall structure of the universe uh, from that early date through to today. And from that is where we can get our most accurate measurement for how old the universe is when the Big Bang happened. And as far as I understand, the the, the best number we can put on that is 13.799 plus or minus uh, 0.21 billion years. So we're very, very confident that we are in this 13.7, 13.8 billion year range. So even with that general picture we're painting of, okay, the universe is this 13.8 billion years. We have all this data pushing us in this huge scale um, that, that involves sort of this violent expansion and contraction, all of these different processes. How exactly, even if we're so, even if we're, you know, try to be as flexible as we can with Genesis chapter one, how exactly do these things come together? What it, what are the principles by which we say this is okay and that's not okay in our reading of Genesis chapter one? So for here, I want to, you know, in a certain sense, shift back into the theological side and, and shift into how Aquinas talks about this very, very problem. Again, he's not addressing our problem. He's not addressing the Big Bang. But what he is addressing is the problem that you start to see in Augustine and, 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 and is now even more present in his own day of just the range of opinions that the church fathers have on how to read Genesis chapter 1. That in and of itself is a problem independent of exactly what you think your cosmology is. And so he's trying to following the lead of Augustine lay out what is the what are the core ideas and principles that that unify what the church fathers have to say. Particularly in the Summa earlier on he was a little more uh, precocious in this but Generally speaking, Aquinas is very loath to say this church father is right and that church father is wrong. Uh, He does his best to try to incorporate uh, and and read charitably all of them. And there is nowhere where this is more present than in his discussion of the Hexameron of the, the Genesis chapter one. In fact, rather than being this sort of easy thing to read until 150 years ago, in a very real sense uh, that you see initially in the Church Fathers, and even more so in Aquinas, Genesis chapter one is where the church learned to read the scriptures in a very in a very complex and sophisticated way. Some of the most um the sort of complicated and and detailed discussion aquinas has on the interpretation of scripture and the reading of scripture comes out of his treatment of the hexameron and questions around the fact that so many church fathers said diametrically opposed things about what was going on here so where is the unity where is where is the the unity of inspiration in these in, in the fact that the church fathers end up in different places so in addressing this aquinas says okay well, those things that pertain to the faith are distinguished in two ways, For there are things that are of themselves of the substance of the faith, such as that God is three and one, and this kind of thing uh, in which no one is permitted to opine otherwise. But other things are only accidentally of the substance of the faith, insofar, namely, as they are handed on in the scripture. So anything in the scripture is at least related to the faith, and we need to deal with it seriously. But there are aspects of the scripture that are so immediately to the core of the faith and other aspects that are more accidentally related, and such are many historical facts which can, without danger, be unknown by those who are not ob- obligated to know. When you get to heaven and Saint Peter uh, 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 you know, welcomes you to heaven, he's not going to quiz you on the details of the order of the kings of, of uh, the, the, uh, the order of kings of Judah uh, 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 of the Israelite kingdom. When exactly did uh, the, did the temple fall? Who exactly took it over? There's not there's not a, a test about the history. Those things are important to the faith. They solidify and strengthen the faith, but they're not exactly the core of the faith. They're not the reason that we are saved. Um, and on these kinds of facts, even the fathers held diverse opinions, explaining sacred scripture. Um, let's there. Oh, no, okay. Thus concerning the beginning of the world, there is something that pertains to the substance of the faith, namely that the created world had a beginning and all the fathers agree on this. But how it began and in what order uh, it was made pertained to the faith only accidentally, insofar as these opinions are handed on in scripture, whose truth the fathers holding diverse opinions handed on by diverse explanations. So here is at least one example of something he's saying where when we think of the stories of creation, there is a unity among the fathers of the fact that there was a beginning uh, uh, to, to, to the creation of the universe. Even if they debate about exactly how and in what order that beginning came about, uh, so this is a, a hint and a tool for how we might look at Genesis chapter one. That there are certain aspects coming out of the reading of the Genesis chapter one that are uh, that that are common to the fathers, and that's a good a, a first good hint. Uh, and I would argue are can be made uh, uh, can be reconciled with a contemporary understanding of uh, of, of modern science. Um, So I'm going to propose four such truths. Um, This is, in certain sense, just, I mean, it's a list I've come up with. You can find echoes of this in Aquinas. I don't think he lists these four in particular anywhere, but you can find echoes of it in him uh, and in the church fathers. And I think they are kind of standard Catholic readings, uh, even up until you look at contemporary conversations about Genesis chapter one. These are four theological truths that are very clearly being expressed in Genesis chapter one. Um, they are first, as Aquinas says, that there was a beginning in the beginning, right? Check. Um, two, that there is order in the creative world. The world was without form and shape, then God said, and something happened. Uh, so that there is something of order that is being put into the created world by creation, that it's not random and chaotic, uh, that that, that God is, is, is putting order there. That there is goodness in the creative world. God saw that it was good. And finally, that humanity is in some sense a pinnacle of creation. Let us make human beings in our image after our likeness. There's something different about human persons that is not true about the rest of creation. And all the church fathers, whatever they might read about lights and days and the order in which things happened, would agree on these four four principles. The thing is, on first blush, even these four principles seem kind of problematic. How exactly are these four things Really, actually, true in the context of modern Big Bang cosmology, right? I mean, perhaps the first one is easiest um, in the sense that, right, at least compared to um, the way people thought about the universe before uh, the, the early twentieth century, this is much, much more conducive to the idea of there being a beginning. There's, there is, there is, in fact, an image of what the beginning might have looked like or did look like. Now, again, you know, um, you know, if we if we look at this, I mean this plot starts somewhere, right? So the fact that there is a beginning to this plot is at least an echo of the fact that science points us toward the idea, at least the possibility of there being a beginning. Now, again, there are other models by which the Big Bang is just a part of a larger structure. Um, so either this sort of, you know, uh, uh, expanding and collapsing repeated process, uh, or that like our universe is one larger structure of some uh, uh, larger things. There are various reasons to think that, that you know, that there. These are not scientifically unreasonable arguments. Um, I, there are certain philosophical issues I have with them, both as a physicist and as a philosopher, but they're not, uh, it may be that the Big Bang was not the beginning, but there are fairly compelling arguments to be had um, that uh, that there probably was a beginning. Uh, I'm still gonna hold for Aquinas being right on the fact that we can't know that for certain, uh, but that's a conversation for later. Okay, so that one's fairly easy, but. What about there is order in the creative world, right? I mean, like all those massive chaotic explosions, right? This little image here, right? This, this earliest sign of light is literally, I mean, it's, it's a, a, a little snapshot of the quantum randomness of what was going on in the early universe. Uh, and, 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 and there's like these minor fluctuations that seem to be just randomly distributed. Where is there order in this? Where's the pattern in this this quantum randomness? Well, I think sometimes we overemphasize the dichotomy between randomness and order. So imagine, for instance, your junk drawer. Um, So this is a cardboard box with a bunch of stuff I pulled out. I don't really have a drawer, it's more a shelf. Um, So if I took a bunch of stuff and throw it in a box, and I shake the box up, Random, chaotic, as it's shaking, it's moving all over the place. As I slow down, though, as I slow down, watch, watch, you end up with. So, in a certain sense, here it's just, it starts random, it stays random, it's just a hunk, a mess of of randomness. Now, same box, but I put a bunch of ping pong balls in it, right? So, as I start shaking, right? Chaos, randomness, things bouncing around. Try to keep track of any one ball, it's gonna be horribly hard. It's just going all over the place, going all over the place. As yes, we settle down in a little bit of a tilt just to make sure everything kind of leads one direction, a certain kind of pattern emerges. If you look here, uh, let me get the mouse over here, right? you can see this sort of hexagonal pattern where you have you know, uh, a ball in the middle and six balls around it here, a ball in the middle and six balls around it there, a ball in the middle and six balls around it here. You end up getting, yes, it was random. And it is, in a certain sense, random. right? If I told you to keep track of any one ball, you'd have a hard time figuring out where it ended up uh, in this uh, in this structure, so there's still randomness here of which ball ended up where, and yet there is order that seems to have emerged out of that randomness. Where did that order come from? Um, and importantly, right? So this kind of order uh, shows up. Oh, let's hear it. this. This kind of order, this particular order, this hexagonal packing pattern shows up all over the place. It's just a grocery store. It's the most efficient way to pack spheres. So as you, as you know, uh, as you try to stack spheres, you get this pyramidal structure and you can see these, uh, these sort of hexagonal patterns, uh, the sixfold symmetry. Um, if you look at um, uh, 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 the um, uh, bees in a beehive, right, you get the same sort of sixfold pattern, the circular body of the bees, trying to get as efficiently as possible, you get the hexagon again, uh, hexagon, hexagon again. There we go. Um, you, sneeze sneezeweed, everyone's favorite plant. Uh, I don't know, us, you, you know, like these balls pack as tightly as they can. You get again this sort of hexagonal packing pattern. The eye of a fly, again, these you know circular things crammed together. You get this hexagonal packing pattern. Um, there's a way in which it, uh, um, uh, this order, this particular pattern, um, seems to show up everywhere in nature. Where is it coming from? Uh, in a certain sense, it seems to come out of nothing, and yet. I would argue that it actually comes from the fact that all of the things we're packing together here are circles. Think about a circle. Think about a sphere. You can take that sphere and rotate it in any pattern you would want. Rotate it in any direction you would want. And it's spherically symmetric. In mathematics, you say it has infinite degrees, infinite number of, uh, 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 it's infinite symmetry. You can rotate it by any angle and you'll get the sphere back. But the, hexa- the hexagon, right, it's a six-fold symmetry there's only certain angles you can rotate this structure to kind of reproduce itself. So there's a weird way in which actually what we had was a bunch of individual things with more symmetry. And when we crammed them together under under certain circumstances, they lost symmetry in a certain sense. There's sort of less order and yet new order. There's a different kind of order that emerges because there is a deeper order in the sphere that then manifests itself in this very visual, more uh, present order. So this is, you know, this is in some sense, just a big geometry problem, trying to sort of fit certain shapes together. But for various reasons, for physicists, this kind of symmetry goes even deeper and goes beyond three-dimensional space and into the way that particles relate to one another. Um, Again, because I have to talk about particle physics, I apologize. Um, So there's a moment in the history of uh, the development of particle physics where we had observed all sorts of uh, hadrons, mesons and baryons. These are basically different ways in which quarks can collect each collect together in relatively stable patterns. And when we uh, when when physicists looked at all, then they, they they realized they could organize them into these plots based off of the quantum numbers, the various properties that these collective particles had. And so you have here the mesons make this really nice hexagon, with two at the middle and six around the edge. Here you have the baryons with like you know two in the middle and six around the edge, uh, or, or a certain kind of baryon. Another kind, of, another uh, group of baryons, though you get you get a trapezoid. I mean, trapezoids are okay, but like, I mean, it's a trapezoid. Like, wouldn't it be so much cooler if there were a particle right there that like just made it into a triangle? I mean, isn't the triangle so much better than a tra- than, than, than a trapezoid? Um, maybe, maybe you don't get that, but, it's, but for the physicists, like, there seems to be a symmetry that's like demanding there'd be one more particle there. And for various reasons, knowing what the quantum numbers were, Physicists could predict what the properties of this particle was going to be and what sort of experiment they should run to find it. So they went looking for it, and they found it. We found a particle to complete that symmetry. Now, these kinds of symmetries are very, very abstract. They're not visual symmetries. But the particular visual symmetries that make up, um, uh, the, the particular symmetries that, that underlie these particles underlie the symmetries in the periodic table the ordering of the atoms, uh, which underlie the symmetries in molecular structures, which underlie the symmetries, the physical symmetries in larger chemical structures, particularly bio- biological structures. The fact that, uh, uh, that, that you know, these are roughly, symmetri- uh, roughly spherical or roughly circular in their body shape can in some sense be re- reproduced to a, a complex collection of how the, the physical symmetries of, of, of a whole complex pattern of chemicals which can be reduced to a certain symmetries of the atoms, which can be reduced down to the symmetries of, um, uh, of those particles. That there are, there's deeper symmetries that, when sort of shaken out randomly, as if in a box, manifest less symmetry. We talk about, in fact, breaking symmetries in physics. And yet that new broken symmetry allows for more complexity, a different kind of order that wasn't there before. So even though the world is, yes, quantum mechanical and random, that there is order that is actually manifest by that randomness. There are certain kinds of order that just wouldn't be there if we didn't have that randomness as well. And that the more we look at the world, the more we can find those patterns emerging and connect them back to the deeper order at all the different hierarchies uh, and, and uh, stages of being. Um, okay, so um, we have this notion then that there is uh, a goodness in the creative world. Well, you may have heard certain physicists or, or, or popular science people talking about, "Oh, the universe is a is a is a cold, dark, empty space uh, that's uh, an, un- an uncaring space." And I mean, there's a certain truth to that, right? And there's a sense in which people talk about, right? I mean, there is just the very process of of, of what we are depends upon tons and tons of things being created and things dying, death and destruction things being made and created and destroyed. How is that good? How is all this death and destruction good? Um, it seems like the universe is emptiness, void, with lots of explosions and pain. Where's the goodness in that? Um, so for instance, here we have a, you know, an example of a supernova, right? It seems like this is the death of a star. What's so good about the death of a star? Well, for the star itself, it's not very good. But if it weren't, if we didn't have a certain number of generations of stars, we didn't have stars, nuclear furnaces to fuse together the hydrogen uh, and a little bit of helium that that was the only elements that existed in the early universe, we wouldn't have things like carbon and oxygen and the foundations for most of chemistry. If we didn't have certain kinds of supernova or or certain kinds of um, uh, collapsing neutron stars uh, um, uh, that's recently discovered by gravitational wave observatories, Like we wouldn't have things like gold and platinum and heavier metals. That so much of what we take for granted about the beauty and complexity of of the earth depends upon generations of stars being born and dying. So while it's not good for that particular star, there is a a greater order, there's a greater complexity and beauty to the universe as a whole because of that time, because of that death and destruction. Um, So there's a way in which, uh, just briefly to say that if the universe weren't as old as it is, as big as it is, and didn't have as much birth and dying on a on a, a galactic scale, a stellar scale, and even on an evolutionary scale in terms of the, the the birth and death of various species, there wouldn't be the diversity and complexity that we find here on earth, so that while in some in one sense it's it seems to be not good, a lot of death and destruction it opens up the possibility of a greater goodness of the whole. Um, okay. So the last one I want to talk about is the idea of humanity being the pinnacle of creation. Um, so um, there's a general sense that people talk about, oh, well, before you know, Copernicus, everyone thought that uh, human persons were the center of the universe, and all of modern science has been pushing us farther and farther away from the idea of us being the center of the universe. And there's a sense in which that's true, right? So here we have kind of a, you know, a pictogram of the heavenly spheres, Earth in the middle. Um, But now we know that's not true, right? Our Earth is a part of the solar system. The sun's in the center. We are in there, but we're just like the third rock from the sun. No big deal. Um, And our sun is just like this random spot in the middle of the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy is just one of this infinite, you know, not infinite, this, this massive number of galaxies. So we seem to be just one little speck in this massive structure. What's so important about us? First, a minor correction. Um the idea that uh it was the idea the idea that there was a huge importance to the idea of um human persons being at the center of the universe is a little bit anachronistic. Because um, if you look here, uh, uh the earth is at the center, but um uh what's really at the center of the universe, under the earth, is hell. Um, being in the center isn't actually that good. That's where the, uh, the, there's a way in which actually the the best part of the universe was the imperium heaven, where God, where, where where Jesus Christ glorified was living, awaiting the awaiting the return. So this idea of the center being so 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 important. The center is where first all the corruptible stuff is, and then even, the even worse stuff down below. Uh, so the the idea of being at the center was not actually such a great thing in uh, in, in that cosmology. Um, but also more broadly uh, leaning on the things that we were talking about before well yes in a physical sense we are not the center of the universe there is a very real sense in which, which in which we can see how so much of the universe has been ordered just just so that so that human persons can come to exist it just is the fact that if we looked at you know, if you went back to that standard model of particle physics i showed in the last slide there I, I mean I didn't put up all the different quantities of the different coupling constants, but if you just went in there and decided to muck with the numbers and just throw it back up there, you would not get our universe. you would not get our chemistry you would not get our biology in fact, most of those things it's like maybe a like a little bit of a percent leeway, and after that, the entire like like something breaks down so early on that you wouldn't even get beyond you know, lithium and like the second and third uh, uh, um, element on the periodic table, let alone anything like organic chemistry or biology. That there is something about the overall pattern of the universe that is just, just so ordered for human persons to come into existence, for for biology in the first place and then human beings. Um, and while people lean into the idea of those anthropic coincidences in a different way, is this a sign of God's direct action in the universe or just a particular pattern that we need to, that we haven't discovered fully? It simply is the case that so much of our universe is just so arranged to allow for the possibility, the length of time and the complexity necessary for the existence of, hum, of human beings, for the existence of you and me. So while we may not be the physical center of the universe, we are in some very real sense, uh, the the the, the end of the universe, what the universe is ordered to. That there seems to be something very interesting and unique about the biology that exists on Earth, and in particular, the human species. That as best as we can tell, there's nothing like it. Uh, in our solar system, there's nothing like it in any, anything we can see in the universe, uh, d- despite trying to, trying, trying to find it. That there does seem to be something particularly special about humanity. So with that, uh, uh, you know, th- that I th- there's a way in which, although on the surface, These sorts of four truths coming out of Genesis chapter 1 are often presumed to be in conflict with contemporary science. Understood in the right way, there's a way in which a lot of our cosmos actually fits into this bigger picture of how the universe, uh, of God's creative power, and the truths that are coming out of Genesis chapter 1, and even more so when we bring it to bear with a broader understanding of creation scriptures as a whole.